Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Enia Luco, who is a former professional footballer, broadcaster, author, lawyer, and football consultant, who has one of the most successful careers spanning 100 caps for England and representing England from the age of 17. I am so excited to chat all things football, but also more importantly, so much more than that. Eni, how are you doing? It's great to have you on the podcast. Alice, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be on. Thank you for the warm introduction. My pleasure. And like like I said in that introduction, you do a lot. You've done a lot. Yeah. Like For someone so young, you've achieved so much and it's going to be really interesting to delve into all of that but I guess I always like to start by kind of going back and understanding the roots of the of the kind of journey so I would love to hear about your upbringing and really I guess initially how football came into your life. Yeah so I I was born in Nigeria so born in Lagos um, I'm the, the oldest of five siblings and the only ones were born in Lagos so I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm the true authentic uh, Nigerian <laughs> and um, I moved to my mom uh, moved to England shortly after I was born so I was about six months old and um, yeah moved to Birmingham and uh, pretty much about the age of five I started playing football it was in my local area my local estate there was all boys and my younger brother who's two years younger than me um, played football as well so it was my quickest way of being accepted really in the area as somebody that clearly was quite different in terms of it was only boys there was no other girls and you know I really 
I really just took to football. It was a gift. No one taught me how to play. I just was able to play and I was obsessed with it. I used to play every day. I used to play out every day and it became part of my, you know, identity. You know, I became known as the girl that plays football in the area and, you know, I quickly just assimilated really quickly um, in sport, obviously played in school as well and um, just... Yeah, just absolutely loved football growing up. And then how did that kind of transition into, I guess, joining a team, finding a coach, having the confidence to go from someone who plays on the streets and and probably has so much fun with it, but maybe lacks the the technical ability or not, maybe. (laughs) Um, But then transitioning into kind of a team environment where it's a little bit more structured. And I guess the the goal of then maybe seeing it as a professional career comes about. Well, growing up, um, in the 90s, you know, women's football, girls football was n- was not a thing at all. You know, it's not what it is now where, you know, you're seeing obviously the Lionesses on TV and there's been so much participation for girls, um, you know, at all levels of the game. For me, it was very much, you know, an anomaly. You know, I played in school and I was the only girl in the school team and we played in the odd tournament here and there, but nothing serious. And it wasn't until the age of 12 when I, I got um, asked to play for a local team called Leafield Athletic and that was kind of my first experience with organized football and I was like oh my god like all the girls have the same kit and I remember being so amazed that like we've all got the same kit because for a long time it was just very amateur you know I used to rock up in the same sort of um, Man United kit that I used to wear you know with pop collars like Erin Cantona because I was obsessed with him and um, that was my first real experience of organized football and then shortly after joining Leafield I got scouted by Birmingham City it was like a, a school festival and and I got scouted there and that's when it kind of got more serious where um, obviously they had you know a senior team um, I was playing with uh, women much older than me and you know that's that's when I thought okay this is this is something I can do you know more than a hobby um but not necessarily a profession um so I was going sort of twice a week to training and 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 playing football and we were in a league and you know we were playing like organized games and stuff but still it wasn't really a career path that I ever thought I'd be able to pursue because women's football was there was no sort of like professional league um it just didn't exist at that time so my my parents were very much like you know yes you can play football but you have to you know also focus on your education get good GCSEs and you're you know you're going to uni like everybody else um so that's kind of you know my teenage years were just playing sort of semi-professional football earning you know maximum probably 100 pound a week if that um you know, coaches picking me up because my mom was working and, you know, couldn't take me around everywhere. Um, and then, you know, about 15, I got into the England team. Um, so the England youth teams. And again, that's where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of more advanced than an average person that plays football for fun, but still can't call myself a professional. Um, so it was kind of weird, actually, because it was serious, but it wasn't like not serious enough for me to like, not, you know, uh, to pursue a professional career. It's so interesting. And I feel like even now, you know, we find ourselves at a time where a lot of women's teams and a lot of women that are playing semi-professionally still are having to have careers alongside their football career because the women's game hasn't progressed far enough that even those kind of, you know, when we compare it to the men's game, there still isn't that level of kind of, um, similarity in terms of career progression for women it's much much harder to reach a stage where you then get paid you know a decent wage and it's just 
it's interesting to see that your experience isn't that different to what we do see now, even though in the top level of the game, there has been incredible progress at the grassroots level and that kind of, you know, coming up the ranks level. It just doesn't feel like there's necessarily the same push forwards for equality wise. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's taken such a long time. Um, I think football in this country is a male institution, right? Like it's been, it's been, you know, the the sort of fabric of this culture and this country for hundreds of years. Um, women's football was banned for 50 years. So we are playing catch up, even though there's been a lot of progression and exponential growth in the women's game. Certainly since I was playing, you know, when I was younger, there's still disparity. There's still, um, you know, and I, and I almost feel like we should stop we should stop the comparison because actually it will always lead to disappointment. Um, I don't know if we will ever get to that, to, you know, get to the point where, you know, players are earning 200 grand a week, you know, some of the ridiculous amounts of money that some of the players are earning. Um, And maybe, you know, it's an opportunity for the women's game to do football in a better way and learn from some of those sort of errors that maybe the men's game has made. I, I feel like, the women's game has an opportunity to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I try to focus on the positive growth and the fact that the women's game has so much evergreen space to, you know, for investors, for brands, for sponsors, for TV, you know, broadcasters to really, you know, to really um, grow and invest in the game in a way that there's just not any space anymore in the men's game. Um, I try and focus on that and that really encourages me and, and and makes me feel really positive about the future. And that's really interesting. And I think that's such a nice way to look at it. And you're absolutely right. They are two different entities. And I guess we can't compare like for like. So just going back to your story, because I kind of sidetracked you there. But um, I'm interested to hear about your experience playing for England. I know that there were highs and lows for you. I'd first love to hear about your best memories. What do you really look back on and think, those were my moments that I'll remember forever and I'll take to my grave, you know, that I'll tell my grandkids about those moments. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky to have quite a few. You know, I played for England for 11 years um, and 104 senior caps and I, I never, never once thought I would be able to achieve that until probably I got to 90 and I thought, oh, you know, this is possible. Um but obviously my debut was a was a brilliant memory. Um I made my debut at 18 years of age and I was so young. You know, I I you know, I didn't really understand the weight of it until much much later. And yeah, it was just I was so nervous. I, I made my debut against Holland and I remember getting the ball and just kind of kicking it away like a hot potato because I just didn't want to mess up and I didn't want to make any mistakes. So I didn't, I probably didn't play as well as I could have done. Um, But I think that was the start of a long journey for me playing in an England shirt. Obviously, you know, I think another big memory for me was qualifying for the World Cup in 2008 in China. Um, The England team hadn't qualified for 12 years at that point. And it was such a massive achievement for us to do that. Um, Because I think when you look back, it sort of started the journey of... England women qualifying for World Cups, you know, for every World Cup that that w- was possible. Um, there was obviously a gap for, you know, three World Cups, um, or sorry, four World Cups in terms of not, not making them. Um, so, 
yeah, I mean, that was a massive achievement. Um, and then my hundredth cap, um, was another one where I just, I just couldn't believe that I was able to have, you know, lasted that long and, you know, played, played well enough, obviously to keep getting called back into the England team. Um, you know, and, and was able to reach that sort of 100 caps, which a lot of players aren't able to reach. It's a sort of a special club. So yeah, those three memories stick out for me in terms of, you know, what I'll always carry with me, you know, moving forward as a, as a former England player. Absolutely. And 100 caps is a huge uh, achievement. I think it's absolutely incredible when you just think about how many games that is, you know, it's, it's massive. But um, I guess, from reading about your story and listening to interviews that you've done since um, leaving the England team, you did go on to highlight the racism that you and others experienced from your then manager. And I wondered in your own words, if you could talk to me about that experience. Obviously, like I said, there are always in every experience in a, you know, in a professional sporting environment, highs and lows, but you particularly experienced some really challenging things that were, um, I guess, really difficult for you to overcome. What was that like to speak up against the injustice that you experienced and kind of do it fairly alone in that regard? Um, how yeah. did you find that? I found it, I mean, it was the worst period of my life, if, if I'm being really frank with you. Um, it was it was really, really difficult period for me. Um, very lonely period, as, you, as you've alluded to. I mean, I think lonely in the sense that, you know, the culture at that time, players weren't really allowed to speak up. Um, and if you did, you faced the consequences for doing so. It's moved on from that now. I think a lot of players have sort of taken on this activism role where they use their voice and they use their platform. But back in 2017, when I had to speak out, kind of unexpectedly, really, you know, it wasn't part of my plan to sort of speak out and have to go against the FA in the way that I did. Um, it was very lonely. It wasn't seen as, you know, the right thing to do. And even now I feel that, you know, I... I'm sort of branded this sort of um, uh, whistleblower and, um, you know, this sort of racism um, activist that that um, that was what, not really my intention. My intention was to be honest and speak the truth and say that there are certain people in this team who are not white, who feel very uncomfortable. Um, and I wanted to do that privately when the when the England director at the time, um, Dan Ashworth, asked me to be part of a culture review. I um, I said, yes, OK, no problem. And, and I was very honest in that culture review. And I said that this culture makes makes me feel very uncomfortable. The manager has said things that I feel are racist and he said it to other players as well. And I felt that was going to be handled confidentially and safely and it wasn't. It got leaked to the papers and then we had, you know, the well-documented adversarial experience. So it was horrible, Alice, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, I think I came out of it knowing that your values in life and what you truly believe in are, you know, they're going to, they may cost you something, but you have to, you have to stand by them. That's an incredible, you know, breach of trust. I just can't believe that that was something that happened to you and how, you know, difficult to go through something where you're kind of placed on this pedestal and expected to be the voice for such a huge topic and suddenly thrust into the spotlight. And, you know, when I was reading about your experience, you know, a really difficult time in the sense that how journalists then managed your story and how they spoke about you and the mistruths that they then spread about you, you know, how did you get through that period? I mean, we, we use this podcast a lot to talk about overcoming challenging things and to talk about resilience and strength. I feel like, you know, for you to say that was one of the most difficult 
points of your life, which I can absolutely imagine it would be, I would love to hear about what really kept you going. Who were the people that were there for you? What was the kind of um, supporting structures that you had in place in order for you to, I guess, get up out of bed each day and be able to carry on? Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a great question because you know you do have to go into kind of go into the depths of yourself to to really kind of get through each day you know I was waking up every day seeing a new headline that was like a lie seeing headlines that were just completely untrue seeing you know pictures of me uh, painted out to be some angry woman which just plays on racist stereotypes you know all of these things I was seeing and I'm intelligent enough to know what the papers were trying to do uh, and when I say papers, I, I don't want to generalize. I want to be specific. I'm talking about papers like the Daily Mail, like the Sun, you know, who uh, they know who they're, they're writing to. They know that if you play on those types of stereotypes, certain people are going to feel, um, you know, a certain way. You know, I was painted out to be a liar at that time. Um, all of these things were really, really difficult. And you, you talk about getting out of bed. There were some days I couldn't, you know, there were some days I was just like, I can't, you know, this is not something that I want to face. But I, you know, I have a really strong family. You know, I, my mother's really, a really, really strong woman um, of faith. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a person of faith myself. You know, I, I don't believe I was just put on this earth to just kick a football in the net. I think my purpose is much greater than that. And I think you have to go through certain things to come out of the other end of it stronger, but also, you know, speak on behalf of something that needs to be challenged. Um, now, I didn't set out to do that, but it turned out that that's what the whole experience was about. It was about saying, well, actually, this culture needs to change. And, you know, racism cannot be part of the, the experience of playing for England, um, particularly in a country that's so diverse. So it was hard. You know, I had I had great lawyers. I had, you know, great friends who stuck by me, who know me well. Um, teammates who sort of publicly didn't really say anything, but privately, you know, sent me messages and said, you know, we're with you. And, and, and these things do keep you going. Um, but it was like, I'm not even going to pretend as if it, it was horrible. It was a really, really horrible time. Um, because you've got the, 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 it was sort of a David and Goliath kind of situation where, you know, you've got little old me just trying to, you know, do the right thing. And then you've got this whole institution plus the media that are sort of pitched against you and, and writing about you and, and sort of, um, yeah, it was, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun at all. And, and as we've learned from the, the tabloid media, you just can't win against them. You know, they are such a huge entity that actually no matter what you did they would have still been able to make up their own mistruths and their own lies and their own versions of events that would you know go out regardless of whatever you said and did it's just it's so toxic and yeah I think the only thing you can do is is kind of hold a mirror up to what they're doing mm. um and uh, ultimately I think when you've seen people like Raheem Sterling do that and say well hold on you know the way that you're writing about my me buying my house in comparison to a you know, a white player buying their house is completely different. When Raheem Sterling did that, I think there was a level of embarrassment in the media that made them change that. And I think that's all you can do. And and that's something that I try to do. You know, when I see these journalists who surprisingly are very coy when you when you when you see them in person, you know, I, I always say, well, mm, it's interesting how you you wrote that article. You, you're playing on really quite sexist and racist stereotypes there. Why did you write it that way? They, they never they never 
feel that confident about <laughs> answering to why they do it the way they do it. So I think that's all you can do and just accept that that's part of, you know, that's part of our society and, and just, like I said, focus on the positives, doing what I'm doing and elevating myself and all the, all the other people that, you know, mean a lot to me and in the industry and in football. That's, that's all I, I try to do. And you are doing an amazing job of that. But yeah, if you can't say it with chest in person, that's you it. can't write about it. You that's can't what write I'm about it. It's amazing, <laughs> Alice. Like, honestly, like, cause I, you know, I, I'm part of the media myself now, right? Like I'm a pundit, I'm an analyst, you know, I've written a column for the guardian and, and all of these things. So I, I'm, when I'm on the other side of it, I know that every single word that you write is intentional. And so, you know, when I see a lot of these journalists, I just think, wow, like you're you're not actually proud of what you're doing. And you're quite embarrassed at the fact that I've just highlighted that, well, it's quite obvious what you're doing. But it continues, right? Um, It's clickbait. It, it, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's many sections of society that actually click on that stuff and it feeds something I'd love it to change but I don't know I don't know how it does change well I think exactly as you said if you can call it out and hold a mirror up to it you know slowly but surely you can raise some level of awareness but yeah you're right there are still going to be some uh, bigoted racist people in this country unfortunately you know call a spade a spade who who exactly as as you've said just you know will feed that that narrative which is which is challenging We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Look, one of the things that I would love to hear about is obviously going through that experience and what sounds like such an incredibly painful and difficult, um, you know, part of your life. You know, things have changed we see you know you've even referenced yourself in this conversation there is there is a change in football particularly in the women's game how have things now changed as you see it what are the positive things that you think have happened um maybe as a result of your work or or, or kind of wider things that are happening in in the women's game do you think like the FA have done enough to mitigate your experience happening again um I'd love to hear like the changes you see it basically yeah I mean I shortly after sort of everything happened and you know the FA apologized to me and there was a parliamentary hearing. Um, I had a bit of a decision to make, which was, you know, am I going to be sort of angry at the FA forever or am I going to rebuild a relationship that was actually really good um, before everything happened? And and I, I chose to sort of work with them to provide a solution moving forward so that, as you said, it wouldn't happen again. Um, and so I worked with the FA in terms of their whistleblowing policy, in terms of their, um, you know, their complaints procedures um, and things like that for players. And, you know, as far as I can see, the culture has completely changed. And obviously the coach changed as well. You know, your leadership, if your leadership is toxic and, and comes with a certain level of culture, you just need to change those people. I mean, it's as simple as that. So the people on at the top of the FA have changed. And, and you know, I, I meet with them um, fairly regularly and they're all you know they're all trying to do the right thing you know trying to move the get women's game forward and have done so you know you see England women now in the semi-finals of the World Cup and it's almost standard right like it's you know and it's written about it's covered there's sponsorship there's broadcasting you know I'm broadcasting with ITV now five six years ago that wasn't the case um so, so much has moved on. You know, we've got an, a, the best league in the world. Um, 
you see players empowered in different areas of their life. Um, you know, you see participation now in schools. You see young boys wearing shirts with female players on the back of their shirts. Like, it's amazing. You know, some of the things that I see now, you know, Kim Kardashian brings her son to Arsenal and he's got Beth Mead's name on the back of it. Like, things like that make me choke up. Do you know what I mean? Because people don't understand it's a journey to get to that point where the visibility of a female player is so great that her son, Kim Kardashian's son, wants to have that shirt rather than any other of the 25 Arsenal play- men's players, right? So there's so much to be happy and positive about with the women's game. And as I said, I think from a, from a future investment point of view, there's so much scope um, to just keep growing it and getting better. Um, in comparison to the men's game that's just hit a ceiling where it's just, you know, you see some of the the transfers to Saudi Arabia and the money that's being paid to players, which is like fair play to them. Like, you know, listen, if you want to earn that kind of money to play football, fine. But actually in, in the grander scheme of society, it's quite troubling <laughs> that, you know, billions are being talked about for one player and there's poverty in Africa, there's poverty around the world, there's people that don't have clean water, there's you know, there's so many things that like can be fixed by, you know, that billion other than paying a footballer to kick a football. Um, so there, you know, I think the women's game, there's a purity to it that I really like. And I just hope that it keeps growing in the way that it's grown over the last 10 years. I think that's such a brilliant way to put it. And you're absolutely right. I, I've heard you use the phrase in a few interviews that I listened to, and we've said it a lot on this podcast, you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And this like rise of visibility of the women's game, of players having their own profiles. I think that's so important in the women's game that we get those women known for who they are and their individual yeah. talents and pursuits and stuff. That's really important. You know, I do a lot of work with Women's Health Magazine. Even the fact that they've started to have stars on the cover, they're doing interviews yeah. with players. Like, why has that never happened before? It's it's brilliant. And, and you're absolutely right. Let's put a positive shift on it. It's so great that we're moving forwards in that way. Even things like I live in Fulham, right by Stamford Bridge. Oh, um, I love walking, Fulham. I know, yeah. <laughs> I'm there all down. the time. <laughs> oh, say hi but yeah when you walk down you know the Fulham uh, Fulham Road it used to be uh the flags of men's players men's players men's players now we have women women's players female female team members from the Chelsea team on those massive flags you know that's such a big change and it doesn't have to be that um you know it's 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 kind of happening everywhere but even those small moments where you just see these little shifts and these little changes it's it's brilliant to see it's such an exciting time and I and I absolutely agree with you in terms of women's game you're right doing things differently maybe and maybe finding a kind of a a healthier way to be able to grow a sport and to get that kind of following it's going to be exciting to see where it goes and you know a really good example of that was you know the other day when Lauren James got sent off and instantly everybody was worried everybody was worried that she was going to get reams of abuse um, including racist abuse online, that the newspapers were going to c- completely ostracize her, completely create her as a scapegoat. There was immediate comparisons to Beckham and what you know what happened with Beckham um, back in the World Cup where he got sent off against Argentina. Straight away, I said, well, here's an opportunity actually for that not to happen and for us to learn from the fact that actually just because it happened in the men's game doesn't mean it needs to happen in the women's game and actually we can rally around the player this time and we can 
say, okay, it was a mistake and it was a little bit naive, but she's 21. You know, it's it's part of life to make mistakes and learn from them. Yes, she's done it on the on the world's biggest stage. And I noticed that the newspaper newspapers were, you know, very much reporting that she was being supported and, and everybody came out and said the right thing and, you know, supported her. And and I think that's an example of where the women's game can actually learn from some of the things in the men's game that haven't been nice and haven't been the right thing to do. Um, and even though now women, the women's game's in the spotlight, we can actually improve on on it in terms of football and, and the football ecosystem and then some of the things that go on. And I was quite happy to see that because the argument, a lot of people were saying, well, equality means that she should be punished, that she should be hammered in the same way that David Beckham was. And I was like, well, what happened to David Beckham wasn't right. And we have a chance to like acknowledge that now and say, just because it happened to Beckham, which was horrific, does not mean that that needs to be repeated because now in the women's game, we've moved on and, you know, it's a different type of press, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm. I think that we do have an opportunity to just kind of reframe a lot of the things in football that have just not been very nice um, and, and move forward and just you know, create a world where it's super inclusive. You know, men's football is still not inclusive, Alice. You can, you, you know, there's a lot of, pe- you know, people from the LGBTQ community who do not feel comfortable going to football games. There's a lot of women that still don't know, feel comfortable going to women uh, men's games. Whereas in the, in the women's game, it's far more inclusive. Um, and we need to keep, we need to keep pushing that. Um, we need to make sure that actually it's a super inclusive sport and, you know, there's so much opportunity to continue to make sure that everybody feels comfortable watching football and being part of football. I think that's a really, really good point. And I remember the moment when, so I was at Wembley when um, the women won the Euros and leaving, ah, well, leaving the stadium was the most different experience. Right. I've gone to football games. I've gone to Stanford Bridge many times. You yeah. know, leaving the stadium is always a little bit of a moment where I feel a bit tense, a bit kind of on edge. And I remember leaving the stadium that day, walking down that long stretch towards the station and just the joy and the sense of kind of togetherness and the complete feeling of like being safe. I didn't for once question that there was going to be any sort of like uh fights or kind of tension it was just lovely and that was a real moment for me and look you you can't compare like for like and I cannot say that I've experienced every example of a football game but I know in that moment having gone to other games that I was like wow this is a real different experience to anything I've gone through before and this is something that we need to foster in terms of how many kids there were there how many you know families and women it was just it was a brilliant experience and you're absolutely right we need to find those examples and kind of nurture and foster that sense of um, togetherness, community, positivity, and inclusiveness, most importantly, absolutely, just doesn't exist in the men's game. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think the men's game are trying to shift that. Um, I know Chelsea, for example, you know, I, I'm an ambassador of Chelsea and that they always are really, really focused on the inclusivity um, programs. But you know that it it's it's a, it's quite a difficult culture to shift the sort of fan culture the sort of laddie um aggressive um exclusionary culture that's been part of football for a long time it's quite difficult to shift so the women's game you know just doesn't have that problem and i'm i'm kind of proud of that you know 
Um, so yeah, we, you know, it's just a really good spot. Who knows, you know, who knows where the women's game is going to move to. Let's go there. Let's talk about it. Let's go there. (laughs) So we've obviously had proven success at the Euros. Who's your star player to look out for? Who are you really thinking is playing their best football right now? Well, my, my favorite, if I'm allowed to have one is Kira Walsh. Um, I think she's amazing. I really do. I think she's such an intelligent footballer. She's kind of the engine room of the team. Um, she's the person that sort of starts a lot of the good things that happen in the team. Um, so she she's my favourite, I think. She's one of my favourite, well, yeah, she's my favourite player. But all of them I have a ho- huge respect for. You know, often I, I think, oh, I would have loved to play in this team and I would have loved to play for this manager, Serena Wiegmann, who's just amazing. And something is clearly working as well. You know, if we, we look at your experience where there was toxicity from the top down, mm. when you see the difference that happens when you, as you said, take those people out and replace them with people who are far improved far better just get it you can see that the difference that 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 then has on the you know the whole culture the whole team it really is um it is amazing to see it is and um you know I think the FA would have learned as well you know from what they need to do in terms of like being totally uh inclusive and making sure that the England environment is one that is uh, an enjoyable experience for players you know at the top level it's tough. You you have to, you know, it's so competitive to get into the England team. But once you get in, it should be something that is 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 attached to pride and, and makes you feel proud to play for England, not something that, you know, you just can't wait for it to be over, which is how I felt for so, so two years. I, I didn't really, you know, although I was called in, I didn't, didn't really want to be there. Um, it's, you know, it's clearly not that anymore. And you've got a, a great team spirit, a great team ethic, a manager that's, you know, brilliant and has has had so many great experiences, even working in the men's game as well and, you know, working in America. And, you know, so it's just a great team to support and to root for. And um, I think that it's really helped women's football to be put in the spotlight as well um, because superstars are born and then people go, oh, you know, I want to go see them play for their club. And then it affects league football and club football. So it's just, it's just been amazing to see the success of the England team and how England women's team and how that's impacted the whole of women's football. Yeah, that trickle down effect. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, Kira Walsh being an intelligent player and and I have to give you total credit that we've not even touched half of what you've done in your lifetime <laughs> in terms of, uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was becoming a lawyer, which is just like, when I read that and I was hearing your story, I was like, what? <laughs> when did you fit in time to do that as well? Tell me how you fitted that in alongside, I guess, having your illustrious football career. Well, I, I don't really know, to be honest. I mean, when I look back, I think, how did I have the time to do all of that um to be honest I think as I said earlier you know growing up and it was certainly in my teens women's football was not a career path for me you know I was playing semi-professionally and my parents were very much like listen you can play but you know this might this might not happen for you you know whereas my brother you know is also a footballer professional footballer and he was kind of already on the path and I actually think that having a brother in the game made me almost feel like, okay, this is never going to happen for me in terms of women's football. So I was very kind of like 
focused on my education and focused on doing well and in my GCSEs I, I quickly realized that you know I'm I loved all the humanities subjects like you know I did really well in my history and English literature and those type types of subjects and I fell in love with the book To Kill a Mockingbird um and the the main um obviously the main characters a lawyer and uh, Atticus Finch and I just I mean I'm that kind of person anyway that kind of you know feels a strong sense of injustice for other people and a sort of different side of me comes out when I see somebody somebody's being treated unfairly and so I, I kind of think I've always kind of had a lawyer in me anyway so I was very clear quite early on that I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to go to university for law school. And so I went to uni, loved it, but obviously was playing football at the same time and playing for England at the same time and just had to juggle it, to be honest. And I didn't have the sort of normal university experience when I went, went out raving and all of that. I think I went to two raves in three years during uni because I was always in the library. I was always having to catch up um, on work because I was playing for England or, you know, I was playing on the weekend I often had to ask my seminar teachers to kind of like, can I have an extra two days because, you know, I've been playing for England in some random place in Europe. And they were, to be fair, because it was Brunel where I went, where Brunel is a, you know, a top sports school in this country, they were quite good with that. Um, so they were really helpful in terms of me balancing everything. But it was hard. It was hard. And I do look back and I think, oh, my God, I, I never went out. I was a bit, you know, I was a bit kind of a, a bit of a hermit at uni because I just I didn't have any time. And um, I, I managed to sort of put my head down, figure out how to kind of pass the exams in the most efficient way and came out with a first and was really proud of that because I worked really, really hard and then went on the legal path to, you know, training to be a lawyer and then qualifying um, three years later. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still a qualified lawyer, um, although I don't practice anymore, but it's it's helped my job as a consultant um, and, a, and a sporting director. It's helped that a lot because I do a lot of negotiation of contracts and negotiate with agents and all that kind of stuff. So, um yeah, I really enjoyed the sort of experience being a lawyer. It's an incredible achievement and especially alongside doing everything else that you're doing. And I absolutely can see that that would then pay forwards in terms of the work that you now do. Um, I I really see um, that you are not done with the things that you are going to achieve in this lifetime. And I'm really excited to hear about what you've got on the horizon. I'm sure you have lots of fingers and lots of different pies because I know, for example, as you just mentioned, you're doing the consultancy stuff. You're looking at doing the an analyzing of the, uh, of the games and um, also obviously you're um, commentating. What else is in the future for you? What other projects have we got to look forward to? Yeah, well, um, I I love TV. I love broadcasting. Um, and obviously my my experience so far has been obviously in football, analyzing football games live, live broadcasts. Um, but I'm I'm quite keen on doing other things in TV. So documentaries, um, hosting my own show, launching my own brand. You know, I have a lot of interests outside of football. So I'm a big um I'm I'm really into my art. I'm, I have an art collection. Um, I love traveling. Um, I love music. I love fashion. Um, so I think there's there's areas 
of me that I love that I haven't really tapped into yet and want to explore that a bit more um either in tv or you know with my own brand so I'm excited for that I think I have finally have the bandwidth to actually put my head down and do you know do some of those projects that I've been wanting to do for a long time I'm back in I'm back in England now I spent 18 months in LA um working as a sporting director and kind of did that and that was a big project and came back and I thought okay what do I what do I really want to do now what you know what do I enjoy and what's going to kind of keep the fire burning alongside obviously the football stuff so yeah I mean watch this space um I'm going to be launching my own brand my brand is called hyphen and hyphen is all about exploring the sort of multi-dimensional layers of who we are either in identity so I'm a British Nigerian you know for a long time you know, I, I kind of suppressed my Nigerian heritage and all the things that come with that because I felt like, oh my God, I'm an England player. I can just be, you know, I have to be like one dimensional and British. Um, but actually there's a whole layer to me. Um, obviously, as you said, there's lots of things that I do, which, you know, makes me multidimensional as well. And, and there's so many people that are like that. So um, exploring that and building a community around those types of people, I think will be really cool with Hyphen so Um, exciting yeah so so and that's been kind of in my head for three years to be honest I've procrastinated on it for a long time and like now I'm finally like hitting myself like just bloody do it you know just you know I'm sure you know I mean you're very successful I'm sure you know sometimes you just just gotta do it you know just just if you get an idea get it done stop talking about it just do it (laughs) I absolutely agree with you but I also think no matter how much success you've had nothing stops a little bit of imposter syndrome just creeping in every time you think oh I might just try this and then you're like nope I could never (laughs) but you gotta fight it you gotta fight you have you have because most of the time in my life when I've tried something new and I've done it I've surprised myself Mm. I've gone actually that felt really good like why didn't I just believe that I could do it um so I'm really in that headspace and that spirit spirit of just like forget the imposter syndrome just do it and and you know if if it doesn't feel right you'll you can only figure that out in the moment when you're doing it but otherwise you won't know um so I'm really excited actually for just doing new things new projects and seeing how it goes and seeing how it connects with other people well I for one cannot wait to see what you have coming I am just yeah so in awe of you and um thank you for such a brilliant interview I mean it was great to get your insights not only on the football but also um on all the other things that you are doing and also just to to get to know you a little bit more because I think you're the most wonderful warm person Bless and you. thank you yeah so it's much. really really lovely to have you on so thank you so much for your time I might ca- I might catch you in Fulham yeah you probably <laughs> will you I'm there a lot you know I'm there <laughs> a lot of Chelsea games I've got a lot of friends in Fulham so yeah, let's go for a coffee or something. For sure. Thank you so much, Any. Great <laughs> to have you having on. me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week, so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.